Timothy, you all know, is a letter by Paul to his protege. And Paul had two proteges, Timothy and Titus. And this is a letter of instruction from an experienced apostle to a young pastor. And Timothy is taking over, or is already in, it isn't clear, the church in Ephesus. There's some stuff in here that is hard to figure out, but if you bounce it against the letter to Titus, you bounce it against the letter to the Ephesians, you bounce it against Revelation 2, and you bounce it against Matthew 13, you can sort of get an idea of what's going on. Now, what I'm going to do is read the introduction, obviously, and then I'm going to read 3 through 7 first and then 8 through 11 next. Um, And we'll sort of camp out for a while in the section 3 through 11 of chapter 1. So 1 Timothy 1, Paul, an apostle of Yeshua Messiah, by commandment of God, our Savior, and of Messiah Yeshua, our hope, to Timothy, my pure child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Messiah Yeshua, our Lord. Sort of standard Pauline introduction. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship or good order from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. See if we can unpack that. First thing is he's at the church at Ephesus, and you... Remember when we went through the letters to the churches and correlated them with the kingdom parables in Matthew, Ephesus' problem was that they were really good at doctrine, but they'd lost their first love. We'll come back to that in a minute. So what he's charging him first off to do is the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So what he's trying to do is promote love in the Ephesian church, which is the same thing that Messiah says in Revelation 2, that they've lost their first love. And in the first of the kingdom parables, which is the parable of the sower, which is also Ephesus, they are really, really good at doctrine. So we've got some correlation there. Now, this different doctrine... You charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than stewardship from God that is by faith. And my translation says stewardship. Some of yours will say good order. Same apparent meaning. So figuring out what speculations about endless genealogies are is not trivial. Genealogies are important. The Torah has got genealogies which serve to establish the provenance of Christ, 
The New Testament has genealogies of the Messiah that trace him back to David. The idea of genealogies being unimportant is not correct. So talking about genealogy in general is not the problem. So the problem can be any of a number of things, and that's where I'm going to go to Titus and to Revelation and to Ephesians, oddly enough, and see if we can figure out what's being talked about. And I'll tell you right up front, I haven't, but I'll give you some ideas. So the first thing that it could be, you remember when Yeshua in John chapter 8 is arguing with the Pharisees. They are questioning his genealogy. They're saying, we're not children of fornication. We are children of Abraham. So the idea that Jews can trace their lineage back to Abraham is a big deal. And one of the things that gets talked about, especially in the Gospels, in fact, in the Psalms and several other places, is the idea of uncircumcised dogs. Remember when David goes up against Goliath? And his comment is, this uncircumcised dog will not challenge the armies of Israel. So the idea that Jews have a set genealogy that they're proud of is important. Now, why is that important in this context? Well, let's go to Titus now for just a minute. And where I'm going to go is Titus 1. Because remember, these are both pastors that Paul has under his wing. And there are some similarities between the two letters that will maybe give us some understanding. So I'm down in Titus 1, and I will start in verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Ding, ding, ding. Because you remember, the circumcision party is the one that kicked off the Council of Jerusalem where the big deal was Gentile circumcision. So the circumcision party, even though these two letters were written after Acts 15, has not gone away. And they have not given up on the idea of Gentiles had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So the fact that we're talking about the circumcision party here, I will suggest that may be one of the problems that Timothy is dealing with. Because remember, Paul is writing to Timothy about something they both understand. So he doesn't go into a great deal of detail. That's why I'm cross-referencing these things. So verse 10 in Titus again. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. So we've got the circumcision party who are apparently pushing Jewish myths. Now, what are we talking about with Jewish myths? Well, if you've read very much extra-biblical Jewish literature from Babylon forward, you recognize that they take small parts of Scripture and they weave big stories out of it. 
Many of them are homiletic. There's a tradition of Magid, which is a storyteller. And there's a tradition in Judaism of telling stories to illustrate a point. These stories will often have a loose biblical basis, but not scripture by any means. So the idea then that these stories over the centuries have made it into the body that Jews regard as the law is perfectly sound. We went through a lot of that when we went through the book of Galatians. So one possible group that we have a problem with is the circumcision party who are spinning Jewish legends and myths. There's a quote about genealogy in Titus also. So let's go down to Titus 3.9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So we're talking about genealogies in Titus, and we're also talking about genealogies in Timothy. So I'm suggesting that whatever the problem is, it's the same problem. Now, I said earlier that Jews trace their lineage to Abraham, and they have a genealogy that goes back to Abraham. Let's now go to Revelation 2. So it's to the church in Ephesus, obviously. Verse 2, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So we have a problem with false doctrine in the early church. That was the big deal in Galatians. That's what Timothy and Titus are both being warned about. And of course, Timothy is the one who is the pastor, if you will, for the Ephesian church. So he goes in there, I am assuming, with a hot iron and starts chasing out those who are dealing in false doctrine, and he may be a little bit zealous in that process. Because remember, the problem in Ephesus is not lack of doctrine, the problem is lack of love. Verse 3, I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Verse 6 is where I want to be. Yet, this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who are the Nicolaitans and what does that have to do with genealogies? The word Nicolaitan is a compound Greek word, which means ruler over the common people. That's just what the word itself means. So the idea that I am taking from that, and this is fairly common in commentaries, not unique to me, is that these are people who are trying to set up a clergy of some kind that is going to rule over the laity. And, by the way, they finally succeed in the form of the Catholic Church. So the Catholic Church succeeded in setting themselves up with a clergy. So the idea there is 
the church invented all sorts of extra-biblical sacraments. And what they did was they then made money off of delivering these sacraments to the laity. They suppressed reading of the Bible. In fact, when they started translating the Bible into the vernacular, if you had a copy of the Bible, you were subject to the death penalty because what you did is you put in danger this system that the church had set up for ruling over the laity and making money. Now, how does that relate to the Ephesians? Well, one of the things, remember, when we were in the Galatians book, is Paul says that these members of the circumcision party who have come through and are causing you to believe that you have to be circumcised to be saved want to lord it over you. They are saying, we are the pure Jews. We are God's chosen people. We should be in charge and we should interpret the scriptures and we should tell you what to believe. Standard stuff with an established church. The Pharisees were doing it at the time of Christ. We are in charge. We'll tell you what to believe. You're supposed to do what we tell you to do. And I'm not knocking Jews. Catholics do it. Endemic to organized religion. So one possibility then of these genealogies, one possibility, there's, there are others we'll get to in just a minute, is we are the seed of Abraham, we are God's chosen people, we have the genealogy to prove it, and we should be in charge. That would be an interpretation of what the Nicolaitans are that Yeshua is speaking against in Revelation 2. So that's one possibility. Another possibility is going back to extra-biblical Jewish literature of the time. If you read that stuff, they've got all sorts of characters and beings in their literature that are not in Scripture. They've got angels. They've got archangels. They've got all sorts of stuff that are in that. And they have genealogies for all of these beings. So one of the things that might be being spoken of here is, again, members of the circumcision party who are steeped in that literature coming in and talking about these genealogies that are in the Jewish literature as if they were equivalent to Scripture. That is another possibility. There is a third possibility. The third possibility is pagan religions. If you've done, done any study of Greek mythology, Norse mythology, any of those kinds of things, they have these whole genealogies of gods and angels. So the idea of divine genealogies, if you will, is well established in all pagan religions, at least the ones that I know of. So the idea here is we have and to use a Catholic example, a holy family. How many of you have seen a holy family Catholic church? And the idea there is we have a father, a son, and a mother. So you then have genealogies that develop from that. And Gnosticism, by the way, does the same thing. Gnosticism, for those who don't know, is an early rival of Christianity. It was a mixture of Christ and Greek, which said, the more you know, the more saved you are. The Masons today are, are Gnostics. 
very, very attractive and very popular, especially with clever people, because, oh, if I know all these secrets and these secret genealogies and I'm in the right order and all this kind of stuff, I'm going to be somehow better than everybody else. So I want to be in Ephesians 5 to sort of round this off. Ephesians talks extensively about love. And speaking of which, Paul will talk to Timothy extensively about love. Just to remind you, Yeshua's complaint with the church in Ephesus is that they've lost their love. So Paul, in both Timothy and Ephesians, talks heavily about love in that context. Let's pick it up at Ephesians 5.3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. The idea here, again, is you have got people in the church who are sons of disobedience. And again, we're talking probably about the same crowd in 1 Timothy verses 3 through 7. We may also be talking about the Nicolaitans in Revelation 2. That is as much as I know about the subject, which is to say I don't really know anything. I am simply pointing you to a whole bunch of stuff that seems to bear on the paragraph. I'm not saying, thus saith anybody. I'm just pointing you to all these correlations. Let me come back now to 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.6 Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Not exactly sure who that is, but it's obviously somebody who is bringing in false doctrine, which is what Titus is talking about and Ephesians is talking about, as is Yeshua in Revelation 2. This idea of people keep coming in and trying to pervert the doctrine of the church as delivered by Yeshua. And the fact that they desire to be teachers of the law indicates that they may be of the circumcision party. Pop up out of scripture for a minute. One of the things that is a temptation for messianics is we spend a lot of time doing this kind of stuff. And you're all here because you really care about scripture. And boy, if somebody comes through and he's got a new twist on some aspect of scripture, you got people just, woo, let's go listen to him. So this idea of wanting to dig into esoteric parts of the law or parts of the culture is very human, and it is a failing that messianics are especially prey to. I will not begin to tell you the number of weird things that I have come across in my career being a messianic for some 30 years. And by the way, we don't let random people come in and teach. 
if somebody wants to bring something in, they got to come to me and the elders, let us see it, and then we'll decide whether or not it comes in. That's under the auspices of the church. I mean, if somebody stands out in the parking lot and is talking to you, then you're on your own. You don't belong to me, but the idea that I'm supposed to watch out for that stuff, I take seriously. So now we're all the way down to verse 8. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The thing that I firmly believe is neither Paul nor Christ speaks against Moses. And what he's saying is the law in this case is good. Moses is good. If it is lawfully used, and what I am taking that to mean is you can start from the law and you can wind up in some weird places, which is what the Pharisees did and which is why Yeshua went after them and why Paul went after them in Galatians, and while the Council of Jerusalem went after them. Because they start with the Torah, and they say they're teaching Torah, but they wind up some weird places, and they are not using the law lawfully. This list of things that one should not do is all of it straight out of the law, straight out of Torah. The other thing is, this is an excellent companion piece to the Galatians study. Because remember what we said in Galatians, where Paul uses these examples of the covenant at Sinai uh, versus the covenant in heaven, where one is the son of a slave woman and the other one is the son of a free woman, and that the law keeps us under a tutor until we come of age, all of those metaphors. What he's saying there goes right along with this, that the only reason that you need to write down don't murder, don't covet, don't whatever, is because some people will do it. If we were not inclined to do that stuff, it would not need to be written down. We wouldn't need to be told. And that's the whole purpose of the New Covenant, where the Torah gets written on your heart. And at that point, the written Torah becomes obsolete because we have no inclination not to follow it. So when he says that the law is made for the disobedient and the sinful, he is exactly correct. Say, if we weren't tempted to sexual immorality and theft and covetousness and all that kind of stuff, nobody would have to tell you not to do it. I don't have to tell you to eat three meals a day. You're going to get hungry and you're going to eat. I don't need to tell you that. There's no need to make a law because you're not inclined, most of you, to starve yourselves to death. It's the same kind of thing. Verse 12, I thank him who has given me strength, Messiah Yeshua, our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Messiah Yeshua. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Messiah Yeshua came into the world to save sinners, 
of whom I am the foremost. Christian Doctrine 101, I'm sure everybody can recite variations on that by heart, as you should be able to. And the idea, of course, is we did not deserve to have Messiah shed his blood for us. He didn't do that because of our merit. He did that because of his love and the fact that he loves us and he wants to redeem us. And both before and after redemption, we still tend to be sinners and we still tend to go astray. And so what he's saying here is the grace and mercy of Messiah for his own purposes is why he did that, not because of any merit on our part. The only merit that we have is that we are creatures that he loves. And we can't help being that. The comment was that what Paul is saying is, I didn't get what I deserved. Instead, I've got the grace of God, which is wonderful. 16. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Yeshua Messiah might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, I was so bad that he used me as an example. He stood me up and he brought me into his kingdom and he dusted me off and he turned me into an apostle. And I think probably the reason he did that is because I was so rotten that if he can do that for me, everybody else would have hope. Verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they might learn not to blaspheme. I have no idea who Hymenaeus and Alexander are, but one of the things I've noticed in these two Timothy letters, they were both written by Paul from prison. And he occasionally waxes into grumpiness. This being an example, he gets even more grumpy in Second Timothy. But anyway, the idea that Timothy is to work against people who are doing the same thing that the circumcision party was doing in Galatia. They're trying to complicate salvation. They're trying to make it a hard thing. They're trying to make it something that you've got to come to them from, much like the church tried to make salvation and the sacrament something that you had to come to them for. And the metaphor that I use there goes all the way back to Genesis. When Jacob is fleeing from his brother, heading north to go up to Haran, where he's going to meet his wives, he comes upon three flocks in the wilderness and a well with a big stone over the top of it. The sheep are all laying down around this well and he got a stone there and he says, what's going on? And the shepherds say, when all of the shepherds get here, then we'll roll away the stone and we'll water the flock. The idea here is the shepherds don't want the flock to die of thirst, but the shepherds want to be in control of the water. And when his intended, Rachel, comes, he sees her, falls in love with her, walks over, flips the rock off the well, 
waters the sheep, and the two of them leave. That is a perfect picture of the Holy Spirit in the world. You have the shepherds, the Pharisees, the priests, the rabbis, the church, all those who are guarding the well. And you got to come to us in order to get the water. And then the Holy Spirit comes in, Jacob, flips the rock off the well and waters everybody. And what he does is he takes control of the water away from the shepherds and he gives it to each individual. I really like that metaphor, quite frankly. Let's get on to chapter 2 here. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving to be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Messiah Yeshua, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So several things going on here. First off, as we've said many times, Paul got the Gentile franchise. As the gospel was going out to the world, Paul was given the Gentile franchise. Peter was given the franchise to the diaspora and the circumcised. And Paul says that all the time. Second thing, and he will say this again when he's talking about the qualifications of elders. The church really should be an orderly, peaceful organization, not causing trouble. I'm reading a book right now called The Theological Origin of Modernity, which is talking about the Reformation and the time just before the Reformation and so forth. And there was a dispute between Martin Luther and Erasmus. Luther and Erasmus agreed on 90% of everything. But there was one thing they disagreed on. Luther believed that everything happened to us through the agency of God. Erasmus believed that human beings have free will. Everything else they agreed on. That disagreement caused warfare in Europe for 150 years. Millions of people were killed And the slaughter was between two groups of Christianity over, well, do we have free will or don't we have free will? That was it. They agreed on everything else. They agreed that Yeshua was God. They agreed in Trinitarianism. They agreed on everything. But they disagreed on that. And it sparked wars that ricocheted through Europe for 150 years and something on the order of 30% of the Germans were killed during those wars. 10 to 20% of the British. It was just terrible. And it all comes from these niggling little definitional arguments that people have, which goes back to chapter 1, where you have these endless little disputations over things that are really of no moment, but people just get all wrapped around the axle about, and they wind up, killing each other. And what Paul is saying here is you want to lead a quiet life, 
You don't want the pagans messing with you. You don't want to be a thorn in the side of the civil authorities because they'll suppress you. You want to be orderly. And by the way, that goes also to Romans 13, where it says, be orderly, be peaceful. So verse 8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. The point is, modesty and adornment are societally determined. There was a column in Washington when I was there uh, called Miss Manners. And somebody was writing in about modesty. And she was struggling with it because her thing is sort of Victorian manners. And one of the things she said was, oh, I look at the Cretan women and they are all topless. And that just seems to be the way everybody is. So I guess for a Cretan woman, being modest means not having a bone through your nose. And again, the idea here is modesty in women is societally dictated, if you will. The idea is not that your worth comes from your appearances, but your worth comes from what you do. And that's very much in line with Proverbs 31 where the Proverbs 31 woman is industrious, she manages her household well, she's a businesswoman, she goes out and buys and sells real estate and all those kinds of things, but she is adorned by her good works. 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. I don't know what the salvation through childbearing is. Let's go back to Genesis 3 for just a minute as we think about that. One of the things about Adam not being deceived, and this is... I think I first got it from Chuck Missler like 30 years ago, and I thought it was very wise. Where it says here, Adam was not deceived. Eve has been deceived and has eaten of the fruit. And of course, in most societies, the woman is the one who makes dinner. And the guy's out plowing and doing all that stuff. So when he comes home and she hands him the apple cobbler, he's not deceived. Now, one of the things that he could have done is he could have said, whoa, babe, are you in trouble? Stay away from me. I ain't going to eat that stuff. God made one of you. He can discard you and make another one here. Just put me back to sleep and we'll start over. He didn't do that. What he did is, as I read this, is he willingly followed her in to mortality because what he knew was the two of them coming together at some point was going to result in the Messiah. And in order for humanity to be saved, which is to say in order for his wife to be redeemed, that had to happen. 
Right now, she's hanging out there all by herself. He goes and joins her. They come together, and they have children. And eventually, those children will be the Messiah. And the Messiah will then redeem everybody. So that very well may be what Paul is talking about here. Adam was not deceived, followed Eve in, and in that process then set up the situation where she could eventually be redeemed. That's as good an explanation as that as I have. The comment was that in giving up his own life, in other words, in becoming mortal, Adam then became the first figure of the Messiah. He was not the Messiah himself, but set the pattern, if you will. 